Welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Network Podcast. This is a special edition release of the panel talk, Is Racism an Addiction? Featuring Vimala Sara, Holly Whitaker, Seho Morris, Richard Schwartz, Jessica Hope, and Kevin Griffin. This topic is so incredibly important for us in recovery. Doing anti-racist work is an integral part of our healing especially in Buddhist recovery, where we aim to cause less harm. How can we do that if we have not explored how to be an anti-racist and learn how to not perpetuate the racism inherent in our society? Anti-racism work is recovery work. And if you don't realize that, you're practicing spiritual bypassing and spiritual materialism. You're holding yourself back from reaching the next step in your recovery journey. This episode is long, but that's because the topic needs that much time to explore. Listen till the end. It keeps getting better. Before we get to the panel, I wanted to announce a few recovery events coming up. First, we have a recovery meditation workshop this coming Sunday with Caverly Morgan. This is the Buddhist Recovery Network Academy program. She will be speaking to the desire we have to meditate right, end thinking, master practices, but how can we move away from this and move past these conditioned thoughts that stand in our way of our direct experience? What changes as we practice inquiry into the nature of consciousness? This event is titled Liberation Now from the Progressive Path to Direct Experience. Join us this Sunday, September 4th, Go to BuddhistRecovery.org for more information. Next, we have an event on healing the effects of racism for black women in recovery, put on by She Recovers. This online program will be taking place Sunday, October 18th at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Eastern. The first 90 minutes are welcome to all women and non-binary folks followed by a closed roundtable conversation for Black women and non-binary folks only. It'll be taking place at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Eastern. Please check out sherecovers.org, and then under Online Programs, click Critical Conversations for more information. conversation and I will introduce all of us formally uh, a bit later on. I just wanted to firstly begin with a couple of minutes silence. So we're going to begin with a minute silence for all the people who have been killed by the police.
And now we're going to have another minute's silence for the disproportionate murders of black, indigenous and people of color by the police. As I was sitting there, just holding that silence, the thought came to me, how did we get here to be having to have silence for the people who have been killed by the police, for the disproportionate number of black indigenous people of color who have been killed by the police when the police are supposed to be protecting us? How did we get here? So this uh, discussion, this conversation, is racism an addiction and looking at the codependency of racism. My friend, my mate Elizabeth in England, she rang me up and she said, uh, she said, I've just been, I've just been on this, uh, I've just been at this meeting and I've heard the term racism as an addiction. And I said to her, oh no, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. And I had a real strong aversion to it. And one of the things I said to her is, what does that mean I have to start being compassionate to white people? If I start taking on racism as an addiction, I have to start being compassionate to white people. And then it's like, what happened to my Buddhist practice? But I had a real strong, aversion but you know my my friend Elizabeth she was really insistent and Elizabeth is black okay and she was really insistent she really wanted me to to look at this so after the phone call I went to Professor Google and I googled racism as an addiction all the different variations and hey presto what came up Dr Nzinga A Harrison who is a black woman had coined the term on June 8th, racism as an addiction. And I really encourage you to listen to that podcast. And it was in response to the George Floyd death. And one of the things she, she the, the, the term she used was um, continuing to do behavior despite the negative consequences. So I thought, oh, she's, she's looking at the four C's of addiction, which is craving, compulsion, loss of control, and 
the negative consequences. And when I reflected on this, I just thought about um, the most, the most, well, I wouldn't say the most recent death because people since George Floyd, people of color, indigenous people have still been killed by the police. But the one that, that blew up, uh, the George Floyd, I, I, I kind of thought, let me, let me use this framework of craving, compulsion, loss of control, and uh, despite the negative consequences. So I thought, okay, Chauvin, the police, had a craving to arrest a black person. And the reason why I say that is that as you watched the, the video, there was no need to arrest George Floyd. There was no, there was no, there was no need to tackle him to the ground. Yeah. So there was definitely a compulsion to arrest this, um, to arrest George. There was definitely a compulsion. And then we see the loss of control. Even though the brother, you know, brother, you know, brother George, even though he's saying, I can't breathe, even though that there are people watching and saying, you're killing him, stop it. Nobody stops that loss of control. And despite the, the negative consequences, they still, they still continued. And one of the things Nzinga points out, the negative consequences is on the target, is on the victim. It's not so much a negative consequences on the actual people who are purporting the racism. Although we could say now that they are, um, you know, uh, they, they have been arrested. But one of the things I just thought, well, okay, well, well what, what do you get from, from being racist? And I can remember being so, the, one of the most disturbing things about that video for me, one of the most disturbing things, it was disturbing watching the way they carried George into the ambulance. But the disturbing thing was, was after he'd been carried away, the way Chauvin preened himself, it was almost like, it was just, just as I'm doing like this, it was almost like, yeah, he felt good. And it was disturbing. I was just so disturbed by the way he just preened himself. Yeah. So it's really interesting just beginning to look at this thing of uh, racism as an addiction. And then myself, I had been asked to speak on a panel on codependency. And I was thinking, what do I want to talk about? Because this was during the time, during the time of the uprisings. And I thought, yeah, there, there is a, a codependency to racism. In fact, uh, in my community, I've just curated uh, several panels. And the first panel was all uh, people of colour. The second panel was all white. I've, I've been waking up in cold sweats thinking, oh my God, are they going to be okay? I don't want, you know, I don't want them to feel bad. I don't want to make them to feel guilty. How can I be it so, so they're going to be okay? And just, I could just see this codependent behavior just rolling out. So I just think that this is a, a really important um, conversation for us to have, okay? So, I will introduce myself. My name is Vimala Sara, uh, AKA Valerie Mason John, and I'm African Canadian British. 
I have written nine books. My most recent book is I'm Still Your Negro, a homage to James Baldwin, which was in response to Eric Garner when all those killings of black people were happening. It was in response and this book came out this year. I'm also the co-founder of Eight Step Recovery with meetings in several con continents and the co-founder of the accredited program Mindfulness-Based Addiction Recovery, MBAR. And uh, I think that's all I will say about myself. I'm going to introduce the others a bit later when they have the opportunity to speak a bit longer. But we are going to begin with uh, a few icebreaker questions to set the scene. Okay, so uh, I'm going to begin with Richard first. Richard, what is addiction? Uh, so, yeah, first, uh, let me say that I'm, I don't consider myself an expert on 12-step or racism, so, but I have developed a way of helping people focus inside on different parts of them and parts that carry extreme beliefs and emotions that I call burdens, which, uh, and, and help them unload those, those extreme beliefs and emotions, including racism. So I'm honored to be with you. For me to add to your definition, uh, an addiction is a activity or a substance that's used by protective parts of a person to help them get away from and not feel other parts that carry burdens like pain and worthlessness and powerlessness or terror. So it's used to, to keep all that locked away. And in, in the case of the, forget the, guy, the policeman's name, but the guy you said was strutting around, my guess is it would be used to stay away from the powerlessness that he felt at some point in his life. Thank you. Jessica, what is addiction? I keep forgetting to unmute myself. Hi, I'm Jessica. Um, the, the best way that I can think of, because I've been through many iterations, <clears throat> um, is just a constant seeking outside of oneself to address something, um, something persistent, something painful, as has, has been said, um, that must be addressed internally, psychologically, spiritually. Um, at this point in, in my own discovery and my research, I'd say it's a behavioral pattern. I initially learned it to be um, who I learned it culturally and in society as a moral failing and um, in my initial recovery as a disease. So the definition for myself is evolving, but yes, it is a, just a constant seeking outside of oneself. Um, and at best, I, at best for me, it can be defined as a behavioral pattern. Thank you. Kevin, what is addiction? I think of it in uh, fairly simple terms as uh, compulsive thoughts, words, or actions that lead to your own or other people and or other people's harm. Uh, I, to me, the, the essence of it is, is the harm because a lot of people will sort of trivialize addiction saying that, you know, they're addicted to, you know, Game of Thrones or something. And unless they're watching Game of Thrones 20 hours a day and skipping work and 
ignoring their family. They're probably not harming anything. So uh, I, I find that important to, to highlight the, the harm part uh, so that we understand that it's not, there's nothing trivial about it. Thank you. Holly, what is addiction? Yeah, I think um, it's often easiest to use the definition that you used at the beginning of this, um, the one that uh, Nazinga used in her podcast, which is anything that somebody does despite negative consequences. Um, habitually, I think societally we look at it in a very, very specific realm of behaviors and, and chemical dependencies. And so I think that's the easiest way to conceptualize it in the way that we think about and we interpret addictive behaviors. Um, but I also, um, I like pulling the word apart. I like understanding where it came from. I like uh, looking at Bruce Alexander's work who goes back to the root of the word addiction and talks about it as bondage or talks about it also as devotion, overwhelming commitment that can sometimes be positive. Um, but I think when we're conceptualizing addiction here, we're thinking about it in a very specific way, in a very negative way, in a very stuck way, using an external means to manage what's going on internally. Thank you. Seho, what is addiction? In my experience, <clears throat> addiction is a pervasive physical, mental, emotional, spiritual insecurity, and a ceaseless craving of the mind not to have that sense of discomfort overthrown on whatever those four particular uh, dimensions are. And uh, because it's so obsessive, uh, self-centered and compulsive, it always results in some expression of disconnection. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. We're gonna move on to another icebreaker question. And uh, I, when I think of this question, what is racism? I was thinking, how, how, do, I, how do I answer that? Because it's just been my, lived experience throughout my whole life and you know and and i just i there's just there's there's several things that i just really want to say to this and i think from my lived experience i, I can remember as kids we were walking in a white neighborhood and there were a, two or three of us who might who, who would have been uh, people of color and then we were with some other white kids i grew up in an orphanage and these kids these white kids saw us and they ran away screaming they literally ran away screaming i was i was bold then when i was young i was bold i was like why are they running away screaming you know so i um went and chased them and they were hiding behind the bush and they literally thought we were going to eat them that were black people we're going to put them in a pot and eat them you know it was just like you know and i've been in situations as an adult where i've turned my hand over and it's like Oh, your hands are just like monkeys, you know? And then um, the one thing that I will say that really, uh, two things that really do stick with me. I can remember being so angry that I had to think about race and color. I just remember saying, why did I have to? I remember being so angry. And I remember being uh, in college. It was at college and 
studying psychology and being told that as black people, we were 13 IQ points inferior to white people because intelligence was innate. And that because intelligence was innate, we definitely, the British had built their whole education system on these confounded studies by Cyril Burt and Isaac. And I remember, listen, I was the only black person in there. And I can remember just uh, feeling the, the weight, the anger. I can't, I was just completely distressed, completely distressed. And it, it dawned on me. So I would have been 19, 18, 19. And it dawned on me, wow, I have just grown up in this, this whole system that thinks I'm inferior, that says I'm inferior. Yeah, yeah. So let's have this icebreaker again. Richard, what is racism? Yeah, so uh, what you just said was quite powerful. Um, for me, racism is a set of beliefs that was created to justify uh, enslaving people and murdering and raping them and kidnapping black people. And it's like a virus that infects everyone in uh, whatever country, in, in this case, the USA for me. And like the plague, it not only makes individuals sick, but it also infects institutions so that uh, it creates structural and systemic injustices as well. Thank you. Jessica, what is racism? Um, yes, I have to echo what Richard just said, but essentially it's an artificial invention, right? It's artificial invention of hierarchy that was established to basically accumulate, possess, hoard um, money, property, power. And, and those beliefs are used to implement, you know, oppressive systems into our, into our institutions. Um, as a mixed race Latina is how I identify predominantly, um, all of those elements, you know, from colonizer to um, oppressed, oppressed slaves to indigenous peoples is all part of my history and holding all of those things without language or understanding was quite painful um, in my personal lived experience. So what that was for me was, um, you know, oppression and, and a blind spot, a lack of understanding, a hiding, um, pain and shame, uh, especially as a woman. So it, it's, it's extremely layered, but, but understanding what it was um, definitely, thank you, allows me to make sense of it. Thank you. Kevin, what is racism? You know, as this is a Buddhist community here, and it's a, I think it's helpful to start with the, the reality that race is a construction that has no reality, that there, that there is no such thing as race biologically. And so race is, as a concept is empty in Buddhist terms, you know, racism. But so that, I think you have to say that before you can talk about racism because then racism is built on the belief on a mistaken belief <laughs> but in any case it seems to me that it's it's a belief 
that one race is superior to another and therefore can control and oppress uh, and, and uh, manipulate uh, another race. Uh, so it's this, this idea of, of uh, subordination, of superiority and subordination. Thank you. Holly, what is racism? Um, I have to be honest. I, I, I didn't have any. I didn't have an answer when I thought about that. When I saw the the questions, I just, I couldn't define it. And I went to the internet to define it specifically, and um, it was a really intellectual exercise. And so I tried to come up with an answer that I that makes sense to me. And I think it's about dehumanization, uh, dehumanization of 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 all non-white people in order to uphold white supremacy is how I conceptualize it, to uphold white power. But it's the dehumanization and the impression, the marginalization, um, I think that is the, like at the heart of how I conceptualize it. Thank you. Seho, what is racism? Um, in my experience, it's a method uh, it's exactly what Kevin said. It's an artificial construct that's used by the majority persons of a given culture to dominate and control the society and maintain privileges. Um, uh, a sense of security. A uh, quick example is uh, a long time ago, I went into a cellular company uh, to get a cell phone, my, my latest, greatest uh, device. And um, they said, oh, we don't have any. So uh, my ex-wife was standing outside the store. So I said, she's white. So I said, will you go in and, and check for sure? Because I know enough. So she went in. And sure enough, she came out with that device. And so I went in and I said, hey, uh, I'm a corporate customer. And I gave them the information. And uh, they, they, they literally went whiter than white when they realized what happened. I said, I'm not sure why you couldn't sell it to me, but you could sell it to my white wife. So let's talk about this. And I call it the, the DM. That's how it works. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you. As I was listening to you and, and those of you who are Buddhist, not everybody is Buddhist um, on this panel. And this thing of um, race being empty in a social construct. I, I always love an opportunity to quote one of my favorite people who's Dr. Mbeka. And um, Dr. Mbeka was uh, born an untouchable into the untouchable community. And as, as we know that he did this uh, mass conversion from Hinduism into Buddhism. And the point I want to make here is he, he, he realized that all caste was, was a state of mind. And so therefore you needed a religion to emancipate the mind. And he chose Buddhism because this was the reformation of the human being. But I sit here thinking, well, how much does Buddhism emancipate the mind when there is so much racism still within the Buddhist community? <laughs> so so what, what are we doing? What are we doing wrong here? <laughs> you know? Pamela, sorry, can I say one thing? Sure. Just as an observation that, you know, is moving to me about this conversation is that 
that seems like the we three white people had to refer to basically intellectual definitions, whereas the people of color here were actually able to talk about the experience of racism. And it's very striking to me that I, that I can sit here and not not feel that I have an experience of racism, and that, that feels like a big uh, gap, you know, a, a blind blindness on my part. You know, it's great that you raise that because as we know, the next um, icebreaker question is around white privilege. And I could say that as free white people, you could speak about racism because actually I'm sure some of you, all of you would have been racist. Yeah. And you could have spoken about your experience of being racist and spoken from your lived experience. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, so there, there is, you know, looking at that, that privilege and, um, yeah, so I just want to talk about white privilege because I have been a beneficiary of white privilege. I've been a beneficiary of white privilege because I have certain white friends. So when I'm in England and I try to stop a taxi, taxi doesn't stop for me because I'm black. So when I've come out of nightclubs, I've said to my white friends, you go up there, you stop the taxis. So the taxi would drive past, they'd stop at a white person, and me and my other friend would come and crash the taxi. So I'd be the beneficiary of, of definitely of, of white privilege. I would also say that I've been a beneficiary of white privilege because I grew up in, in a white world. I grew up in an orphanage with white parents, with white carers. So some of my black friends would, would say, you speak to the white people because they listen to you. Mm -hmm. And that was, I was a beneficiary because, you know, I knew the language and I, I knew what to say. I could, I could pass, you know, I'd be like, oh, you're different. You're not like the rest. You're different. You know, I can't do that now. I'd be different with my dreadlocks. But, um, so this, this thing of, uh, of, of white privilege because in a way when we think of addiction we we do gain we do get something from addiction otherwise we wouldn't we wouldn't do it you know and in a way you know if we do begin to see racism as an addiction one of the things people do get is the benefit of white privilege so what is what what is uh white privilege again starting with richard what is white privilege so um, it's at least for me, it's the ability of people with my color skin to not have to worry about the things you guys have just talked about yeah. and to go through life not worrying whether I belong or not <clears throat> and to not worry if I don't get a job, whether it's because of my skin color or if I uh, walk into a uh, store for camp for uh, phones uh, and then psychologically it's I, I have lots of what I call burdens around being worthless but at least I don't have that one I didn't grow up in a culture that gave me that message all the time so it's to have the absence of that uh, is white privilege but it, you know there are lots of more concrete ways that I understand in terms of accumulated wealth and being able to have a, a home and so on um, that, you know, I just don't have to worry about. Thank you. Jessica, what is white privilege? Um, I'd say it's a comfort 
you know, the absence of struggle, or as you mentioned, which I've experienced as well growing up uh, for most of my life in um, a predominantly white space, sort of the ability to diffuse, you know, that struggle in front of you or learning how to navigate white spaces uh, more comfortably. Um, as I wrote recently, um, and I've heard it spoken many times to in, in various iterations, but the most pre precious privilege of being white is that you never have to consider um, what your existence in a community means to the people around you. Uh, and that is probably the most powerful thing and that not relates to all, you know, all of those experiences, whether it's wealth, education, uh, being in the rooms and getting sober, you know, whether or not you're stigmatized more or less criminalized, which was the experience for my family very much. Thank you. Kevin, what is white privilege? This is one I feel I could say a lot about personally, for sure. I think the first privilege of being white is that you don't have to think about that you're white. Um, but in my personal life, the biggest way that I've had white privileges that I have not spent time in prison. When I was arrested for drug possession, the, I was, the, all the police really wanted to do was cut my hair off. Once they had cut my hair, they let me go. And if I had been black, I wouldn't have been able to just change my skin color, which is why they would have arrested me in that case, you know. And um, so my whole life has been uh, supported. I, I've been able to glide through many situations in life and uh, because I was white. And so, yeah. Thank you. Holly, what is white privilege? Um, unearned advantage and benefit conferred upon people of white skin color or that can white pass, uh, white people. Um, in my own experience, it's that I've been pulled over by the cops and I don't think I'm gonna get murdered, that I've um, gotten out of multiple speeding tickets. It's that I'm able to buy a house, my mom bought a house, her mom bought a house. Um, it is that I can go into any space and not feel, um, not need to look for somebody that's white in order for me to feel safe. Um, it's that, uh, most products are made for me. Dolls are made in my color. Um, it is the entire experience of my life moving through the world. Um, a world made for me that I don't have to think about um, at all. It's being able to opt out of racism, conversations, um, and I could go on, but it's, it's so many things. Thank you. Seho, what is white privilege? Uh, thank you. Um, uh, I could be Morpheus. It's the air that we breathe. It's, uh, it's there when we're paying our taxes because there are certain tax advantages. It's there when we go to school. It's there when we go to work. It is the whole construct itself that is built around the majority culture. And so because of that, it has inherent uh, advantages and I've been the beneficiary too of uh, white privilege this my blue eyes have at times been enough 
to slow an action down, the, the, who am I dealing with? And then, I, and that was a privilege that saved my life a couple of times. So that is uh, white privilege, you know, not, uh, you're less likely to have your sense of comfort uh, overthrown uh, in certain ways. Thanks. Thank you. Just as I listen to all of you, I just think, gosh, the, the impact that that has on, on people. You know, I know we, we talk about systemic racism, but, you know, it's like the impact that it has on the individuals. And I, I, I always laugh. I always um, I say I can remember being in New England um, a couple of years ago and walking with a white friend in a police car past us I stopped and she carried on walking and I laughed and I just thought yeah this is you know I mean, not even not even thinking I could carry on walking when that police car passes you know and uh in a way the when I think of the impact on on some of us it, some of us it can be codependent behavior I when I when I think uh, about it uh Many uh, people of color from perhaps from India or China, they've changed their names just, uh, just to make white people feel comfortable. You know, it's, it's like, because white people say, oh, I can't pronounce your name, I can't say your name. So they've just, just changed, changed their name to, yeah, to make people feel comfortable. And that's, that's part of what we do by passing. Even, you know, myself, I, there were certain things I did to make white people feel better so that I could feel better and I could be okay. And this whole, and if we develop this codependent behavior, it impacts all our relationships. It's not just in relationship to, to white people. So thank you all of you for um, taking the risk and having the courage to answer these questions. So now the, each panelist has a bit longer to, to speak. And I'm going to introduce our first speaker, who is Richard, Richard Schwartz. Richard is uh, a white American, and he is the founder of the Internal Family Systems Model Institute. He began his career as a family therapist and an academic at the University of Illinois at Chicago. There he discovered that family therapy alone did not achieve full symptom relief and in asking patients why, he learned that they were plagued by what they called parts. His works explores that we all have many minds, what I call parts, many of which are young and took on extreme beliefs, e.g. racist burdens for protective reasons when we were young, and the pervasiveness of racism in the US is so great that it is impossible for some of those parts to have not absorbed some that then admitting that they exist is not as shameful. It's a part, not all of me, and it, it carries internalized racism that it can unload. So over to you, Richard. Thank you. Um, yeah, that you gave the beginning of what I was going to say. So I do uh, see people as having these parts, and from my point of view, they're all valuable, but they become distorted and, and extreme because of the burdens they take on uh, and racism being one of those. And so I've 
last couple of years done a lot of work with white people to try and help them find their racist parts. <clears throat> and it's been challenging. And, and many of these people consider themselves to be progressive and liberal. So initially they'll often say, I don't have any of that. <clears throat> but as I stay with it and have them just poke around in there and see if there isn't some part of you that sometimes says racist things, they will often find uh, to their dismay and surprise a part that does, uh, when they encounter a, a black person, say something really uh, muted, but in their mind, something racist. And they often, when they find that, feel terribly ashamed and are uh, sure that I'm gonna be judging them. And uh, having done the process myself and worked a lot with my different racist parts, uh, I can assure them that we all have this. And like I said earlier, it is like a virus. And the, the solution isn't to what I call exile that inside, which unfortunately, while there are many, many things the anti-racism movement has done that have been really very, very positive and raising our consciousness about these issues, there is a level of shame that uh, particularly white people feel around anything inside of them that, that ha has any racist tint to it. So just getting them to get the shame to relax and focus on the part that says these racist things and then get curious about it and ask where it got this in the past. And my experience is people will see these scenes from their, often from their childhood where they were being bullied, for example, and felt so powerless and worthless. And this part took on racism because then at least he wasn't as bad as these, these people uh, to feel better. So in that sense, racism can become an addiction because you, you start to use it as a way to feel better about yourself. So that's one example of how it can. Um, so, and in getting to know these parts and seeing where they're stuck in the past and then helping people actually enter those scenes and, and being with that bullied boy in the way he needed somebody at the time uh, and then getting him to leave that time and place, I find that it's possible to unload these, these not only the burden of racism, but also the burden of powerlessness and worthlessness that drives it. So uh, a lot of my work has been to try and help uh, alleviate the shame that comes with, with owning it because we all have some of that in us. And then helping people go to those places and, uh, and unload it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Anissa, could you come back because Holly was knocked off. What well, we've lost one of our panelists. So Anissa, can you hear us? Back on. Um, could you? I've I've sent you Holly's number. Could you contact her? She was knocked off. Can you hear us? Oh, she's talking to Holly now. Hi, I'm on the phone with Holly. We're going to get her back on. Sorry, guys. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. 
technology. Yeah. Thank you for that, uh, Richard. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We'll take a moment. So um, our next speaker is Jessica. Uh, Jessica, how do I pronounce your last name? Um, in English, they say Hoppy. It's a German last name, actually. And I'm told that they would pronounce it Hopper, but you can say Hoppy. Okay. All right. Jessica Hoppy is a New York-based writer and founder of At Nuva Yorker, a platform dedicated to wellness at the intersections of identity, culture, and politics. She is a proud Latina and a fierce advocate for representation in both the editorial and recovery spaces. Jessica has been featured on ABC News, The New York Times, Vogue, Paper, Magazine, Gen Mag, and elsewhere. She is currently contributing to Sad Girls Club, a mental health resource for Big Pock Women and writing her first book of essays, Jessica. Thank you so much for that. Um, it's nice to hear that because I forget that I've, um, that I, gosh, that was such a childhood dream. I think at many, many points in my life, I didn't think that any of those things would be possible. But even hearing my bio, I'm reminded of how much those opportunities came to be because I was um, filling a quota and how those opportunities lended itself to the limiting belief that I had been carrying my entire life. It was that I wasn't enough. And this was borrowed space and borrowed time. In fact, the first time I began to, um, so I would try to avoid those things. You know, I started a career in fashion. I would try and be like everybody else. This was the means of survival. And I was very clearly not like anyone else in these spaces. And I was treated as if, um, it, you know, it was as if I snuck in the back door. And as that would be, you know, continuously poisonous, I did uh, self-medicate. And not understanding what addiction was in, in any kind of way um, and seeing it, you know, in the world as something that was glamorous, that was pleasurable, everybody's doing it, um, was very confusing. And once again, which is another way that I was falling short and not up to snuff, not like everybody else. Um, so in 2017, I did a series, and it's very funny that you, everyone asked me about my last name when I was a child, and I was the only non-white child, and people heard that last name. They, they assumed it was the Hopi Indian tribe, it's H-O-P-I, um, and that was when I had to ask my parents about our last name, and it was communicated to me that uh, it was German, and this was on my father's side, and that was something to be very, very proud of. And as I began to understand and children would ask me, are you black? Are you, and I would be, <laughs> I didn't have the language to explain all the things that I am. And my parents didn't either. <laughs> my parents did not uh, know how to, my parents were doing the best that they could. And they believed that having us in this place was right for our education. And, um, but my mom, was very young, very brown, very um, expressive, and uh, 
she would respond very defensively and so would I. So um, it just sort of continued that way. And then I, I learned what happened to people who uh, responded to racism in that way. And so I started hiding and I started just melting and pulling back and, and that continued for so long and, and into my sobriety. It wasn't until I had a near-death experience and I wound up having to, uh, you know, I guess to be sober, but I wound up, you know, facing that about myself, um, that the harm that I was causing myself was potentially lethal. I literally almost died. But um, this, this began the journey for my family, you know, of embarking something and, and naming things and having the access to care and understanding that we'd never had before. You know, I learned about you know, my uncle being deported as I was leaving for college. He was a drug addict. Um, I just lost a cousin at the start of the pandemic to an overdose. My father, my grandfather rather, uh, died of diabetes. I have another relative who supposedly is suffering from diabetes. Um, it, while we'll, we'll speak of alcoholism, um, you know, it's a very coded thing to, to not speak about drug use because, you know, if I ever asked my father about that and I say, you think it's a bit more than alcohol, he'll say, bueno, no, no, eso no sé, eso no sé. <laughs> so I don't, that I don't know. And he won't speak of it because, you know, you can get someone into a, quite a bit of trouble. And this is just, um, I, I don't know. My, my, intention now my exploration was how i got to 34 years not understanding what i saw a lot of white people understood about what was happening to me and how i can be an influence to to help others like me um to potentially you know stop harming themselves out of uh, shame and hiding out of shame and and to take that privilege of understanding that this is something that has a clinical definition that has loads of support and help and to get people you know there maybe faster or you know sooner i'm not sure but i'm exploring that through my writing and i wrote um an essay recently excuse me that was the first step uh to recovery is to admit you're not powerless over your privilege and it had a really fantastic response and it was sort of my journey to discovering the indigenous roots of uh, group therapy and that just gave me and that resonated for others such a sense of pride you know because um, racism is so prevalent in, within the halls of AA and I was understanding that more and more and the uh, pandemic into the social you know uprising the newest iteration of the black liberation movement is it just made the it's untenable you know it's the pressure is is just so important to keep bipoc safe and to impress upon people that this uh, weaponizing of traditions um is truly racist and that happened to me so many times and then I began hearing from so many people who had the same experience so now we're sort of navigating how you know um and it's quite a bit of labor you know do we you know, go into separate spaces do we have rules for for centering BIPOC voices how do allies respond to that how do they respond to me as a woman of color making these and it's been very painful you know I've been called offensive I've been um 
I was basically, with the group that I started, I started, I was sort of, you know, I'm not a part of it anymore. Uh, so it's been hard and uh, once again, isolating. But it, but the people that I'm hearing from and on my platform, Nueva Yorka, I have heard so many times, I'm the only person, you know, I'm the only Latina, I'm the only black woman. Um, and so I would really like to, to change that. Identification, representation is so important. And BIPOC people are so used to constantly having to find ourselves inside white stories. And so I would really like to, uh, Holly mentioned dehumanization. I would really like to, because as minority, I, I hate the word minority, but the model minority was the only way you could sort of show up and be seen and be relevant, um, or you were uh, stereotyped. So it just erased all of our humanity and nuance and complexity. And even within my family, taking myself and, and our stories, my mother's from Honduras, my father's from Ecuador. And it turns out that I am a speck of a quarter of like an eighth German. <laughs> I'm like nothing German. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I am, um, yeah, I'm, I'm discovering all of these. I'm unpacking and unlearning myself because obviously I've internalized a lot myself. Uh, but yeah, I would like to contextualize what we're going through through storytelling. Um, I, I, I think about Toni Morrison a lot in that, you know, she always wrote that she didn't march a step. Um, she was part of uh, the movements in the background. She used her writing. And I'm not comparing myself at all to Toni Morrison, but I like to think about that as I approach my work um, because my writing more and more is um, reaching so many people. And when I hear, gosh, I've never heard a story that's exactly like me from someone who looked like me, it's very powerful. Um, so I'm, I'm working towards making that impact. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Just to say that Holly is with us. Um, her internet went completely down. So she's had to ring in on the phone and on webinar, you can't be a panelist as the phone. So she's with us and she's still gonna be part of this conversation. And I know that she's listening to us right now. So um, I'm gonna introduce Kevin. Uh, Kevin uh, uh, is white American. Uh, he is the author. Oh, it looks like she may be coming back on. Um, she is the author of several books. Oh, sorry. Let me start again. Kevin Griffin is the author of several books responsible for popularizing Buddhist recovery. He is co-founder of the Buddhist Recovery Network. He is the best-selling author of One Breath at a Time, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, and several other books, Bridging Dharma and Recovery. A co-founder of the Buddhist Recovery Network, he is a leader in the mindful recovery movement and sought after and teacher. He offers retreats, workshops, and public talks internationally. He was trained and teaches regularly at Spirit Rock, Spirit Rock Meditation Center, the West Coast leading Buddhist retreat center. Great, and welcome back to Holly, and over to you, Kevin. Thanks, Emily, Sarah. Jessica, thank you so much for your what you were saying, and I, I, you know, just in this moment, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative of being able to be part of this conversation, and feel in some ways that it's 
my position is somewhat unearned, but I feel also a responsibility then since I'm here uh, to, um, to try to be of some use and um, uh, that so I, I'll talk about areas that I feel like I have some understanding of uh, and just and just acknowledging that there's so much that I don't understand and or that I I understand it when I hear it but I have been able to avoid thinking about it uh, so um, the I guess two things I want to say. One is just, you know, this kind of refers to what Richard was saying about the shame, that the connection that I make with recovery, which ultimately is more important than addiction. <laughs> like if we can get rid of, let's, let's get into the solution, right? Is the, for me, recovery from a, alcoholism and addiction is very, has a very similar starting point as recovery from racism, which is to be able to say, my name is Kevin and I'm an alcoholic. My name is Kevin and I'm a racist. You know, they're two things that nobody ever wants to say. <laughs> and, and yet saying them is incredibly freeing. And, and to, to admit my own racism is very freeing for me because I don't have to lie about it. I don't have to push it aside, pretend that, oh, that's just, uh, you know, uh, it's not really, doesn't mean anything, or I don't believe that or whatever. But also, you know, the, the, I know a lot of people have, don't care for the term powerless in the 12 steps, but here I think it's quite applicable that I am powerless over the fact that I was conditioned in racist ways. That, that our society and our world conditions white people to be racist. I didn't make that choice any more than I chose to be an addict. I have a, once I see that I'm an addict, once I see that I'm a racist, that's when I become responsible. And, and that's when I have to do the work of recovery. And so the way that I got into thinking about this was not on the personal level though, was, and this was just very spontaneous, just back in June, that I started to talk about this in one of my classes. And it was, and it was to talk about America as having been addicted to racism. And that we thought that we, we, we came in, that like the civil war was like an intervention and we thought we were in recovery until reconstruction was over and we relapsed, you know? And of course, you know, we hadn't really, but we thought we were in recovery, right? And then we relapsed and then there was the civil rights movement. And we thought we were in recovery and then Richard Nixon was elected and we relapsed, you know, and, and we elected Barack Obama and we thought, oh, we've really got this, there's no more racism anymore. And then Donald Trump, and then when Donald Trump was elected, we realized we're not only have we relapsed, but the disease is progressive, as we say about addiction, and that and that we've got a lot of work to do. But it feels like that key thing 
of coming out of denial is happening in our country. And when I say that, I don't mean everybody, but I think that just statistically, the fact that the majority of Americans supposedly now support the idea of Black Lives Matter, that's like one of those markers, it seems. I, you know, I pray that, that we are beginning a process of recovery, which then means we have to, you know, take an inventory, which seems like what we're doing, you know, the fourth step to inventory, uh, you know, try to have these, you know, within the steps it says, ask God to remove our shortcomings. Well, I'm not going to ask God to remove my racism. You know, I'm going to have to do it. We're going to have to do it as a society and then to, to make amends. Uh, there's some, you know, I think there are some good parallels about the work that we have to do. And just like with addiction, there's always the risk of relapse. And it's a, one day at a time. And we have to keep doing the work. Uh, you know, I didn't understand my addiction. When I got sober, all I knew was like, I need to stop drinking and using because my life is screwed up. And it's been years and years of unraveling everything behind that and healing from that. I guess maybe the to bring a, a high point to the end of that is that the 12th step says that we have a spiritual awakening. And, and I, it does feel like in some ways maybe there's a spiritual awakening happening in our country. Again, I, you know, I say that with all hope and humility and, and understand that once again, as a white person, I can be incredibly naive, you know, about these things. And, and that, you know, it's, it's very comforting for me to think, oh, we're solving this problem. It's going to be better, you know, and I don't have to, because I don't have to live with the consequences either way. I, I suffer emotionally when I see others suffering, but my own personal life is not impacted. You know, it's, it's really not. I just go out and take a walk and, and I don't worry about people looking at me, uh, judging me, uh, treating me in any negative way because of who I, because of my race. So uh, I, I hope that we're, in a process of recovery. Thank you. Thank you. Holly Whitaker is the founder of Tempest, a modern trauma-informed digital rehabilitation solution and founder of The Temper, an online publication dedicated to examining all aspects of life through the lens of recovery and addiction. She's the author of Quit Like a Woman and Lives in Brooklyn. Over to Holly. Um, so I think very similar um, to uh, what Kevin was saying, I feel that my position here is unearned. Um, and I think it, uh, it is a, the, the way that I am speaking about racism as an addiction is from a very white and privileged perspective. Um, and so I thought about this a lot about how do I, how do I honor this space and honor that your experiences, Jessica's experiences and Seho's experiences um, are very different than mine, that this is a very personal 
dramatic thing versus um, what has often been um, uh, an inner a, a, an exercise of, of thinking through versus experiencing firsthand that that oppression. And I think a couple of things. I think first, just to I'm of the belief that addiction is is directly correlated to systematic injustice. I don't think it's just one of the reasons we become addicted. I think it's the reason. I think that uh, capitalism, free market systems, I think that the society in which we live um, is, uh, is why we are becoming more and more addicted. I think that that drives so much. And then I think the second piece of this is one, we don't recognize that. And the second piece of this is then we don't recognize how saturated our recovery systems are in the same sickness. The same system that created that sickness that leads us to addiction, these things are pervasive within the systems of recovery. And so it's not just a side conversation, um, it's the conversation that has to happen. And I think that's the first thing I wanted to say, which is it's, to me, it's, it's yes, it's, 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 there's so much entanglement in that. And then to speak about it personally, and I think like how, you know, as a white woman, as, as somebody that has been, um, you know, just a, four or five years into understanding or trying to understand racism, um, I think I would like to share probably one of the more meaningful things, the more meaningful ways as a white person, how I understood and how I understand racism specifically as a likeness to addiction. And I was in a workshop a couple of years ago. And I think when you're thinking about, when I'm thinking about my own addiction, how much I chose something that had just, that was murdering me, but I chose it over and over again. I chose alcohol, I chose bulimia, I chose, um, I chose all of these very toxic things because I believe there was a benefit that was within that and how much time I spent not being able to look directly at that hook or the way that I was hooked or what it was doing to me. And that, that process of denial, not being able to look at something. And I think I, I was in a workshop a couple of years ago with Patrice Jackson, who's an anti-racist educator. And there was about 20, maybe 20 white individuals in the room, white women, white non-binary folks. And then about uh, 10 um, BIPOC, uh, mostly black, femmes, females. And um, it was a two-day workshop. And it was the first time, I think, not, not I think, it was the first time I had ever minute to minute to minute confronted my own racism, meaning there was no breathing room for me to escape it. It was in my face, which is what I believe um, BIPOC folks experience every day. There's no escape. You cannot opt out. And this was the first time that I had been in the space of consistently confronting it. And at the end of it, Patrice was talking about how we all look like we've been through detox and how this process of uncovering the racism that was within us, how, how we were, how it was like basically swimming to the surface and how we're so in, in it, we can't see it. We're so in the space of being so attached to this thing. And I think in, in terms of racism as a white person, it's attached to your privilege, attached to your power, attached to your indifference, attached to your comfort zone. 
attached to all of the like the like what I would say is cheap power, this cheap kind of power, um, and what it takes to actually confront that and go through that process. That that like that that looking at it, that first recognition, the like as as um, Zinga was saying, like that 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 first step of admitting we have a problem, and and then what's required of us in order to continuously pull that out from within us and examine it and measure it and root it out of us. And I think, you know, to me, it's, there's so much in that, and there's so much similarity in that space of it. You know, if we're talking about racism as addiction, there's so much similarity in that confrontation and there's so much similarity in you're trapped in this fitness. You're trapped in something that is, by the way, the white person we may be indifferent and we may opt out of it, but it murders us. I mean, it doesn't murder us. It's a terrible choice of words, but it, 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 if we are oppressing, if we are indifferent, then we are hurting ourselves as well. We can't see that. That's, and that is similar to addiction in that way that we cannot see the damage that we are doing, not just to people that are directly affected and violently affected, but also to ourselves and how dehumanizing it is to be part of dehumanization and complicity. And so, I think that was the part I wanted to talk about just because it was a personal experience of being able to tie these parallels and how I personally process addiction and also what's required of us and all of us. What is what will be required of all white individuals in order to de dismantle it, the level of work that will be involved by all of us. Um, Thank you. Thank you, Holly. Great that we, we have you here. Great. So um, moving on to Seho Morris, the African-American Reverend. Uh, Seho is ordained into the Rinzai Zen Buddhist monk, has been providing workshops and immersion practices related to cultural bias, racism and harmonism by harmonizing the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and specifically revised expressions of the 12-step principles in an effort to help support and advance the path of change related to racism. Over to Seho. A koan, which is a kind of Zen pointing where the truth is. So there are these two guys on the street corner. Uh, one guy is selling loose cigarettes and cigarette for a dollar, cigarette for a dollar. You want one? And then there's this person, the embodiment of the system. Hey, what are you doing over there? I'm just selling cigarettes, officer. No, I'm just chilling. And somehow they end up on the ground tumbling and he's gotten in a chokehold. I can't breathe. Well, you're talking. I can't breathe. And he clamps down and he puts his full weight on his body. I can't breathe. I can't breathe.
And in that moment for Eric Garner, we all stopped breathing. And our spiritual practice through the most recent edifice, Brianna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey, George Floyd, all these different people. Uh, we're sick. It's the, there's a famous sutra in Buddhism called the Vimalakirti Sutra. And they ask, Vimalakirti, why are you sick? I'm sick because the world is sick. He was a lay person who was considered to be more enlightened than any of the Buddhist students. He was a, just a normal, everyday family guy. But he was sick because we're all interconnected. And so this uh, practice uh, that we're doing together, you know, the way, you know, for me, racism, and this is my personal experience. You know, I don't believe in theory, theory's crap. Um, racism is not a persistent state. So to say, well, you're a racist, that's not true. There are moments when, when we can exhibit it, and moment it goes off, it's very context-specific and dependent on our sense of comfort being overthrown and that version of comfort and what it can look like for me in, in that moment. And so, um, can we admit that we're powerless over the programming and the biases that we that have been embedded into us in the culture? And Zen is not uh, craziness. Zen is, uh, you know, enlightenment. Zen is the practice of noticing what's happening in this moment, not the past, not the future, just this. And notice how. You know, I don't hold people responsible for slavery. What I hold people responsible for, you know, in our culture is the upgrades to the slavery, you know, that we have improved it, we have streamlined it, we have repackaged it, we have remodeled it, redesigned it, revamped it, and it's a slicker product that's harder to notice. And we can do it through voter suppression, we can do it through, uh, your name doesn't sound like Tom, Harry, or, or, or Barbara. I, I think we'll pass you by, you know, and all these things that we do because we, we, there's this egoic fear of that's unknown or that's unfamiliar to my cultural experience. And so, uh, and there's a lot of ways that it is organized and systematized. So, um, Step two in the, this expression of the steps that we use is uh, we came to believe that the power of Ahimsa, the Eightfold Path, and skillful means could restore our sense of harmony in this present moment experience. And how do we basically learn to operate against that which can sometimes be counterintuitive? Um, and hold space with each other. So it's a process, it's not an event. And the last thing I would say is, you know, this noticing of the stuff going on is, you know, Vim Lasar, you, you're talking about codependency. 
it clicked in as you were sharing and other people were talking. What people describe is codependency and my personal experience of living it out as assimilations. Like I've been that guy, you know, that's, a, you know, the guy's got the pants around it, the, the, like kind of like the hips and this and that. And I'm sitting there saying, dude, if you would just pull your pants up and, you know, take one for the team because you're, you're, you're like, you're filling in a stereotype that's holding us all down. That assimilation, that's me being racist in that moment because I, my sense of comfort is being overthrown. I'm squirming like hell and I want to say something, but I don't want to. And I'm just like sitting there. So I'm a curmudgeon at that point, you know? And so can I give that person the freedom to simply be without my policing, my interdiction, my intervention, my physical, mental, emotional, spiritual insecurity, and just abide with unconditional positive regard. Thank you. Um, thank you, everybody. Uh, just to let people know that there is um, a tab which says Q&A. If you want to ask questions, you can send your questions there. Um, as I was sitting there listening to you, I'm just thinking, oh my God, say ho. I've been that person just like, pull your trousers up. You know, it, 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 it's like, you know, and stop being a stereotype and just realizing, you know what? It's, it's like, what am I doing? What, 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 what am I doing? And what comes to mind is, again, looking at this thing of, um, of uh, addiction and people might be thinking, well, what's the rush? What, what, what is the, the rush? Because we know, like, um, we, if we take a drug, there can be that dopamine release. If we have love, love addiction and we think of the person that we, we fancy and we have this dopamine release, and I, I just, what comes to mind is if we remember the roots and where the, the white master is whipping the, the black guy who's being held by his arms, strung up by a tree and says, what's your name? And he says, Kunta Kinte. And he just whips him again. What's your name? Kunta Kinte. What's your name? Kunta Kinte. And every time he says, Kunta Kinte, he whips him and you just think, yeah, the rush, the rush that that person is getting. And he only stops when Kunta Kinte gives an English name. And then I think of George Floyd, it wasn't even enough. It wasn't even enough for the police to stop when he was just saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And what was the, what was the dopamine release? What was the, the rush, the rush in that, yeah. And if we do, if we do actually say that racism is an addiction, how do, how do people go into recovery? How, how, how do white people go into recovery from addiction is, is, is the question. Who would like to uh, respond to this question first wave? 
if we really do see racism as an addiction and we, we talk about recovery and as Kevin was talking about, there's been a relapse and there's relapse, but how do people go into recovery from racism? You know, my first response to that is that it is very similar to addiction in that we have to come out of denial and that, and that means facing a very ugly part of us. And I, I appreciate uh, Seho pointed out that racism kind of happens in moments rather than you are this solid thing but we have to see those you know if if again kind of the buddhist idea that we're kind of we're, we aren't a solid thing but we are made up of these aggregates or you know to see that part of our makeup is this conditioning and to to go beyond the shame of it and in fact to have compassion for ourselves because as some of the comments I've read in the in the chat, you know, it is painful. And and I'm not sure I agree with you, Vimalasara, that there's a rush from that from that uh brutality. I I think that that's a I I remember Thich Nhat Han talking about watching the video of Rodney King being beaten and saying that he he felt compassion for the police officers as well as for Rodney King, because he realized that they were suffering. And I, I believe that when we were expressing anger and hatred, and the Buddha says this, that, that we, we are also suffering in that moment. And that doesn't mean that we condone it or, or forgive it in any you know, broad way, but that we understand that, that what's happening is inherently, it's a, we're shutting ourselves down. We are, we are brutalizing ourselves as well as brutalizing others. And this is why I, I think of this more as a, in some ways, I think the rush is economic, frankly. It's the power and the, and the economic benefit that individuals, that a society gets and individuals ultimately benefit from. But that's what I think we're addicted to as a society is the power and and economic strength that it gives you the initial purpose of slavery the initial purpose of creating the idea of racism was to justify a system that that gave economic power they, they didn't really care about the racism was just an excuse to be able to exploit people's bodies so that they didn't have to pay for labor and and throughout you know this history of racism it's that what society gets from it is an economic benefit. And then, well, I mean, that's probably a very limited view, but it's just what hits me about it. And I don't think that there's pleasure or dopamine that comes from brutalizing people. But again, I could be wrong about that. I don't know. I think, I, I, I think there is. I think that, um, I, I, I do. I, I really think there is. And, you know, you use the, the example of taking drugs. I mean, at the same time, you know, you can snort a line of cocaine, you get pleasure, but there's suffering. Right. <laughs> at the same time, then they're not separate. It's not right. binary. Right. 
and the two do come together and why do people repeat re, re, repeat this 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 behavior well and people do get pleasure out of sadism so yeah so you're yeah, yeah. so yeah. yeah i see what you're saying I'm just wondering, Richard, if you had anything to say on this in terms of the parts work and how how people can go into recovery from racism. Thanks, I appreciate you asking. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, again, my perspective, sort of what Kevin was saying, that there are these parts of us that seem quite ugly because they carry these beliefs and emotions, and so when you stop denying that, then the question becomes, how do you relate to that inside? And my work tends to be focused a lot on healing what drives that. So the, the rush for people that are sadistic even, often comes from the relief they get from this chronic sense that they're worthless, they're powerless, they're terrified, because they have parts that are stuck in those seeds. And when I work with addiction, for example, um, when I, I'll have somebody focus on the part that drives them, that has the craving, and get curious about it, and ask this question, ask this part of you, what it's afraid would happen if it didn't do this? And pretty universally, the answer will be, it's afraid you'll feel blank, you'll feel powerless, you'll feel alone, you'll feel desperate, you'll feel uh, a huge amount of emotional pain, you'll feel the terror that's in there. And the follow-up question is, would you give us permission to go to all of that so we can heal it, and then you'd be freed up from having to do this addiction job? And very frequently the part is willing to let us do that. So for me, self-compassion isn't just for some parts and not for others. It's going to your racist parts in the same way, with the same kind of openness and listening. And also going, I work a lot with people, or with the parts that want to deny what's hap what happens in this country to black people. And you go to those parts, and what are you afraid would happen if you let him really feel it or see it? Well, he would feel all the pain, and then he'd have to act. He'd have to do something and he might give, lose something by doing that. So, and then you can, you know, thank the part for at least trying to protect, but see if we can go to the parts it's protecting who might be too affected, who he's afraid would be too affected by that. So it's a, a bit of a different perspective. Um, uh, it's a, you know, like I said, all parts are valuable. They carry these burdens that get in the way that, that uh, and and uh, the legacy burden of racism is one of them, but that's not who they are. And along the lines of what we're saying, we're not purely racist. Uh, we have parts that carry racist burdens, but that doesn't necessarily define us. Thank you. Does anybody else want to speak onto this or shall I uh, ask a question in the uh, Q&A section? Okay, I'll ask a question here. This is uh, to the codependency question. The addiction of oppressed protecting the oppressor, enslaved Africans, blacks, often look to enslavers to gauge their moods, e.g. we feel all right, boss, 
why do we still worry about not offending, scaring, taking care of feelings, responses, reactions? Anybody would like to speak to this? Why do we still uh, worry about offending white people, taking care of their feelings and responses? I just received a comment this morning um, calling my desire to speak on racism in the rooms as my desire to be trendy and to get attention. And um, my heart is like racing through my neck, mm -hmm. you know, because the last thing I wanted to do was to speak about my identity because the first thing people would do would be to invalidate my, you know, my expertise, my talent, uh, and my skill as a writer for just like my, like, feelings, you know? Um, and this is something that I have to constantly fight and prove myself. However, something as real and relevant and pervasive and systemic and forever has been with us for so long uh, is still being handed back to me, still being handed back to me and my feelings are still invalidated. And so I am left to metabolize the way my body, and this is a, a man who describes himself as I'm that white privileged waspy man, here I come, you know, offering my opinion to hurt you. Um, and to make you this small, which is what the man who I tried to partner with in this creating new space, he said, I only tried to help you because I feel sorry for you. So these are, all of this kind of language is so, so familiar to me. It's still happening. And so I think that when I'm with the people that I love and they're being so careful I don't have the energy, you know, I often like I can't, um, the labor is too much. And um, I tend to, I get a lot of feedback that I tend to just unplug and, and take away uh, my friendship, my love. And, and I don't want to do that, you know, without explanation, but it's just a really, really uh, stressful time. And like I say, in my growing up, um, to be in survival mode for most of your life, like uh, myself, my family has been, um, I'm a first generation and my parents are from, you know, my parents weren't like, oh, I think I'll come to America. My parents were escaping um, poverty, trauma, abuse uh, severely. So um, I think there was this idea that leaving that place or like for the beatings to stop or the rape to stop or things like this to stop physically, then, you know, the, the real work of unpacking that and healing wholly, um, this was the place to do it. And, and, and it's not, this is the place that says none of that matters because this is American. You can do anything you want. And, and, and look at Jeff Bezos. A, a friend just was talking to me about Jeff Bezos telling me how, um, in America is the only place where someone like that could 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 have such a you know turn a startup into becoming one of the most uh, the richest people in the world without and and that kind of propaganda will be in major major media because it's so it's um it's what we all want to hear and ignoring 
systemic oppression, ignoring the fact that it is completely ignorant um, and how people, especially people like my families, are um, used in that process uh, is just, I don't think that my, my friends or the people who love me are aware um, that I am having to silence myself in that moment. But yes, I'm afraid that I will either receive more abuse like I have in the past few weeks or that I'm going to lose the friendship. I'm going to lose the relationship. And so I really have to be careful and calculated. And also as a brown woman from Central America, South America, I've, I, I am, um, I have not been brought up in a world to, to believe or understand that my, my word or my entitlement to speaking and being heard is, is legitimate or going to be honored in any way. So it's a difficult, um, it's difficult navigating that. So I tend to be with BIPOC people, you know, by majority. Thank you. I, I can actually respond to this. Uh, I, I say maybe 25 years ago, maybe, I, um, I co-wrote the first book on um, African and Asian lesbians in Britain. And in the book, we said that all white people were racist. And then I edited an anthology and um, my publisher rang me up and said, I warn you, I warn you, the review in Time Out is just awful, I warn you. And basically the review had just completely trashed me because I'd said all white people were racist. Lesbian Avengers were around then and Lesbian Avengers went and picketed Time Out magazine. Time Out was a really big magazine. So Time Out never ever forgave me, never ever 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 forgave me. Cause I never told Lesbian Avengers to go and picket, but they did anyway. But the thing was, it's that I, it was such a silencing. I remember saying, you know, people say, would you say it differently? I said, well, maybe I should say, you know, maybe sometimes white people are racist trying to make it, make it nicer. And it's like now, 25 years later, I can, I still have a reservation. Can I really say all white people are racist? You know, um, and in answering this question, you know, I, I've been fed up of being told I'm intimidating. Sometimes I say to people, you want to look up the word intimidating in the dictionary. Go and look up the word intimidating in the dictionary before you call another black, brown person of color intimidating. Because I'm just fed up. You know, it's like we're aggressive. We're difficult. You know, I was in a conversation once. I said, it's because I'm black. No, it's not. I told you. I said, it's because I'm black. Okay. You know, I was in a meeting with a couple of black sisters the other day. I just felt so normal. It was just so easy, just so normal. Didn't have to worry, didn't, you know? So these are some of the reasons why. It's because it's, it's, it takes a toll. It, it, you know, it takes a toll. If we, if we bring up racism, why are you bringing up racism? You, why are you bringing it up? You know, it's like, you know, in the Buddhist community, it's, 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 it's like a, you can't, racism and spirituality have to be separate. You know, coming back to Dr. Mbeka, when he did that mass conversion to Buddhism, and it was the largest ever single conversion that's ever been done 
on one day when he did that, you know, October the 14th, uh, 1956. And um, basically, the, he died six weeks later. But the Buddhist world never came to his help because they said it was a political conversion. How can you separate? How can we separate the political from the personal? Every day I walk on this street, it's political, okay? Every, every single day, yeah? So that's, that's why it just takes a toll, you know? We're just we're tired. And, and so it's just easier to pass. It's easier to, be, to pull out the codependent behavior. It's, e it's just easier, you know? We don't want to be seen as difficult and the person bringing this up and making people feel guilty. I mean, I, I got told once, it's like this, I did this whole thing on renunci renunciation, you know, the Buddhist practice, for those of you who, who aren't Buddhist here, it's all about renouncing the identities. You know, it's like when the prince woke up to the truth, he said that these identities that define me as a man, a human, as an Asura, as a Deva of God, have been destroyed by you. And I said to this group of people, what would it mean for you to let go of white self? Well, I got told I was being manipulated. I got, I got pulled up. I got questioned about it. And I was really, for me to step onto the Buddhist path in the West, in this white world, I have had to loosen some of my attachment to my black identity to be able to be in the lineage that I'm in. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm being manipulated because I'm asking you about what does it mean to let go of white self? Like this is, this is the whole path. The strong identification as Richard talks about these different parts, there is a white part to you. There is a male part. There's a racist part. And we can have strong identification to these things. So these are the reasons why we're tired. Man. And I'm telling you, this codependent behavior is, is changing the destruction of the myth, mythos. The fact that these statues are tumbling forever. We've been walking around looking, you know, at these statues that have glorified racism, you know. Forever we've been doing that. And now these statues are coming down. The Confederate flag is coming down. No longer some of us are saying we're going to be codependent and make you feel okay. And, you know, and, and not for you to feel uncomfortable because we think these statues should come down and we think these flags should come down. So this is why. Okay, let me take a pause. I was on a bit of a roll. A bit of a roll there. Let me take a pause. <laughs> Okay, another question. Um, there was a question around, uh, so this is for the 12 step people, a question around, um, is there a place for how a higher power? This is it. Kevin, in use, using recovery language regarding racism, interventional, intervention relapse coming out of denial. Denial means don't even notice I am lying. The <laughs> denial. Okay. okay, mentioned that he wouldn't ask God to remove his racism, that we have to do it as a society. Is there a role of higher power in recovery from racism? This is a question for both Kevin and Seha. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm so, I have to say, 
you know, in this moment, I'm I'm just very moved emotionally by this group and this experience, and uh, so uh, I have to breathe a little bit and and try to think because uh, I'm really right now just in a feeling state. because um, you know, I. I and I'm going to step aside from the question a moment because I have a chance to speak just to say that when I tried to talk about this in my group, my spirit rock, you know, my very white spirit rock group, um, the email that I got, the one email, and I know when I get one email that it's not the only person who's thinking this because to step up and send the email, you know, a lot of other people are thinking that was basically shut up and talk about recovery. We don't want to hear about this. And that was how I heard it. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, the person said that I, that I'm, I wasn't talking about recovery and this was a recovery group and okay, fine. If you want to see it that way. And that, and then tried to say that I was speaking, I was trying to speak for black people because I said something like, if I were a young black man walking in my neighborhood, I wouldn't feel comfortable in the way I feel. And I didn't think I was really projecting a lot by saying that. Anyway, that's my, that's my little thing, you know, I, my, my little moment of being, uh, you know, uh, challenged and uh so uh, jessica i pre really appreciated what you were talking about as a much you you live it live it a lot more than i do as for higher power you know when i talk about higher power in buddhism i talk about the dharma and i talk about the refuges and it's about living in harmony with the dharma so I guess a higher power in terms of racism, to me, the, the antidote is, is love and compassion and universal love uh, and, and trying to, and, and the truth, which again is that race is a construct. So if I'm living in harmony with that, I'm not looking at people, you know, I'm not, you know, not to get into the, you know, color blindness, but, but that I'm not living in that way. And I'm, I'm observing it. You know, I, I was with someone yesterday who I was playing the sport that I play. Which <laughs> I hesitate to bring it up uh, golf because uh, it's, it's associations. And I was playing with somebody who was an asshole and, uh, and he was white. And I didn't think, oh, what a white asshole. You know, I just thought, what an asshole. And I know how my mind works, that if he had been a person of color, I would have, my mind would have been making some associations. And so, and trying to make associations and correlations. Oh, well, you know, and I mean, I don't even like saying that and admitting that to you guys, but you know, that's the embedded racism. And for me, the higher power is being mindful in that moment that it's arising. 
and see, and the, so the mindfulness is very powerful because if I see it, then there's a possibility of letting go. And so uh, the, you know, mindfulness is part of the Dharma, a key part of the Dharma. And when I see it, then I'm able to turn and be in har harmony with the truth, which is that's a moment of racism. And the fact that that person is an asshole isn't because they're white you know, or because they're black. It's because they're an asshole in that moment. They're being an asshole. Frankly, he wasn't an asshole as a human being. He just was sort of a jerk on the golf course at that moment. So for me, it starts with awareness. That's the power of awareness. If we can you know, see that as a, as a power. And then I have to be making the effort to live in harmony with the truth. And what is the, what is the, what is tr true, not, not just what I think or feel, but what is really true, which is that that's, this isn't happening because of a person's behavior isn't because of their color. It's my response to them is, is and, to, and to see that and to see that whole thing. That's, that's for me, the higher power, but I, you know, I started by saying, I don't know. And that's, that's my re real answer. It's just, my way of trying to find a way through it. Thank you. Say her. Yes. Say her, please. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, of course. <laughs> and uh, for me, it's uh, in Kevin, you know, when we were at Spirit Rock, when we encountered each person at Spirit Rock, with, that was to me a sense of higher power that people were. Every person there who was from the Spirit Rock staff, it was like, I'm keeping you in my heart for a while. You know, that, you know, love. I always say love with love, which is lots of voluntary effort, you know? And um, the, uh, the higher power, and this is one of the interesting things. I was at a symposium uh, and there was a author, his very wise man who actually knew Martin Luther King and Colonel Scott King. His uh, name is uh, Dr. Charles Johnson. And he stated there that he, uh, Dr. King's default position was ahimsa, non-harming. And so that for me is an aspect of, of love, to, to not do harm. Um, the hallmark of racism is not to be seen in the eyes of kindness, love, care. It's to be objectified. It's to be put outside of, of somebody else's heart. It's to be othered. It's I'm over here, you're over there, and let's talk about that. And, and, and if you're good enough or we work this out, I might let you back. That's all. That's not love. That is uh, crap. And, um, and my children are my, my best teachers of how to love. And I, I call it autonomous interdependence, which is my kids definitely have their own thing. They got Xbox, they got guitars, they, they got singing, they got recovery, they got all kinds of things. And despite that, we work in, in harmony. And, what, and the harmonizing point between us 
is our values. And so for me, my values are my higher power, spiritual principles is my higher power, and racism is the polar opposite of love. It's unlove. So insofar as that, what I, how I check in with myself is, is what I'm saying and what I'm doing generous? Is it patient? Am I using my ethical guidelines? You know, the, the six parameters, the six practices of completeness. And, and, and kind of something similar to what, what Kevin says. When, when, my, when my white friends F it up, well, they'll say, yeah, I said that, but I, this doesn't apply to you because you're not like them. Instead of launching, ah, you know, like Fudo, uh, what I, if, if it's possible and I can get my breath, what I literally say is, in this moment, I'm going to give you, a, you just uh, activated your accident forgiveness insurance policy. So I'm, I'm cutting you a break on this one. But this is the problem. Not okay. And then move on. And, don't, and not to be attached to that previous moment. And, and the last thing I would say about this in terms of higher power and allowance for higher power, because, you know, is I, I really live by a very basic principle. And it, and it seems kind of like weird when it comes to racism because things need to be named. But uh, Soren Kierkegaard once said, once you label me, you negate me. So th even though I'm saying this is what happened, however, this is the next 60 second part can we be something other than what that was? And that can be challenging, but it takes work. It takes concentration. It takes mindfulness. It takes the eightfold path. It takes dedication, determination. And, and honestly, and I'm going to throw, throw this lightning bolt out here. It also takes um, unsubscribing from cancel culture. We have to learn. For me, I... I've honestly, in 12 programs, I've worked with neo-Nazis and, and helped them get clean and sober, you know? And, and, and one guy said, and this is about values, he said, why are you helping me? I don't, and he, he said a couple of things. I said, dude, I just asked you if you wanted to go out and get some coffee because everybody else is afraid of you. You're a tweaker and you're saying some neo-Nazi stuff. And he says, well, why would you do that? Because I'm your last shot. It's staying clean today in this moment. He said, you're buying? Um, I think I have a couple bucks. Let's go. He said, okay. You know, and, and three years later, I was giving that guy a medallion because I didn't cancel him. I said, oh, this could be one of the people that we called sick. Okay. And how do we, we work? Because the Bodhisattva practice is even when we're squirming, how do we still not spiritually bypass, but not codependently turn into it? Uh, because a part, a one key aspect of codependency in my experience is my personal codependency. I, I used to feel sorry for white people for being white, you know, like, oh my God, you know, they'd be crying there and I, and I would, you, you want to pick them up, you know, and, and, and now I just, when they start crying, I'm like, I'll, I'll sit here with you, I'll hold space with you so that you can turn into your will. And so that you're not running away from it. You're, whatever you're doing is good. And I, and I love you, brother or sister or 
other or they them and because we all must be on the same team thank you thank you we're almost coming to the end and i just want us to have a few final words but i really want to just kind of uh mention this question who's from a woman of color she says i'm a woman of color and i have had difficult conversations with fellow teachers within the yoga community when I have pointed out microaggressions and ways that white supremacy has continued within the yoga studio, I have been met with answers of gaslighting and silencing. One person even said, there are bigger racial issues at hand and this is not one of them, as if they only see over acts of violence such as murders as bigger issues. They don't understand that white supremacy is insidious and systemic as the air we breathe. My question is, how do you recommend we respond to someone like this? How can I reconcile forgiveness, compassion, while honoring anger and frustration? So just wonder, just very briefly, uh, Seho, Jessica, if you want to speak to this. Yeah, the spiritual bypass is just a mother. Yeah. Um, I... <laughs> There's this beautiful um, platform called Black Girl and Ohm, and she literally started it because she felt that um, oftentimes, like in editorial, when I would advocate for representation, they would say, um, literally studies show that when you have various images, people's eyes will focus more on white faces they just consider them more attractive. And, and, and that's why we do it. You know, that's why we don't include black models, brown models, these faces, but it just, it's, it's advertised, it's, it's the statistics. We can't do anything about it. And in yoga and wellness spaces, you know, all these practices that are reappropriated. So when we, oftentimes when our family come here and we learn their, their migration stories, we learn that there's a lot of land theft, dislocation, all of these terrible things that, that, are not explained to us. A lot of times, a lot of our histories are unknown to us. So when we feel that vibrationally, the loss, you know, um, the seeking, there aren't a lot of answers to us. But oftentimes those things, the tools that we ancestrally possess have already been um, <laughs> like appropriated, repackaged and sold with white teachers at the forefront. And so when we enter those spaces, you know, in that format, they are natural to us. But we were forced to let go of those things. You know, it's just like going to, to having a child over my house and they smelled the food that my mom was cooking. They're like, ew, what's that? And my asking my mom to give me like TV dinners and what other kids had, even though those things were completely unhealthy. It's, it's American. It's white. It's what I want, you know, and without understanding it. So oftentimes those things make us, they're actually making us unwell. Um, and we need to come back to those things. By the time we come back to those things and it's okay for us, they're not safe spaces for us. Um, and then I've heard a lot of the times, well, uh, I can't get black people to come to yoga. I can't get brown people to come to yoga. So this woman, um, I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting her name, but she gave a beautiful interview and she said, you know, these spaces are not for us. So her, her uh, mission was to create yoga space um, that's for black and brown people, particularly black women. 
So I highly recommend looking her up. Um, and they do a lot of like meditation and, and Sad Girls Club is another space for that too, where I contribute. It's an online resource trying to give um, therapy, therapy resources to destigmatize it, right? Because we have the strong black woman, the impervious to pain, um, all of these ways that we have to assimilate and be a part of by completely erasing ourselves. And the fact is, we are oftentimes, um, so, and I think it's, it's about telling us that we're not good at it too, you know? <laughs> like, there's just this assumption, you know, we're not smart at it, we're not made for yoga, we're not, you know, like, there's, there are these things and labels that we carry. And so, um, yeah, and, and we're, we're left out of them. And then we're forced to feel okay in them, even though if we express uh, even gently, um, that we're uncomfortable, um, we're, we're marked and we're further marginalized, you know, and, and that's the most painful thing because we, you, you have to get up a bit of courage to even vocalize it. And then when it's completely, you know, when you get the spiritual bypass and it's about you finding comfort, just like in sobriety, anytime I addressed anything regarding racism in the room, it was that I wasn't sober enough to swallow it. Well, you lost God. Well, principles of our personalities. Well, um, if you were spiritual enough, if you know, we find the similarities, not the differences. Okay, but the whole world is waking up to the dangers of, the, of these differences that y'all created, by the way. Um, and I'd like for those to be acknowledged, you know, because there's no way that we can't overcome them unless we name them, unless we excavate them, you know, um, unless we go at them full, you know, full charge. And, um, but when we do, you know, it's like, whoa, aggressive, crazy brown lady, what, you know, so it's, it's really hard to navigate. Right now, like my easiest entryway is, is in BIPOC spaces. Um, and then like coming together and finding out tools and ways to, um, but you know, that, that sucks that, you know, that's not a forever solution. Um, I'm going to say thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, say ho just briefly towards the anger and forgiveness part. Yeah. Um, the, well, forgiveness, forgive, to extend something before I, my ego or their ego understands to give it. Mercy, love. Um, you know, this is what I would say, and this is the way, way I normally do it, which is, like, I used, to, like the gaslighters, I used to try to win them over. I wrote long emails. I wrote, wrote long text messages. I wrote long posts. They were like about three days long because they're just, I'll just, I will informationalize them with all the facts. They'll get it. My sponsor asked me a question one time, a, a, a crazy question. And uh, my sponsor asked, what happens if you actually win one of them people over? I said, what? I said, yeah, what if you win them over? You know, you argue them out and you do everything you got to do. What happens? And I said, I don't know. And she said, you're stuck trying to win them over every single day. And that doesn't sound wholesome. Kid, I'm, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. If you want to be happy, lower the bar. Someone, they don't get it. 
you're you're not a tree you're not planted and you keep that's what all, all the other like gurus did and all the like buddhas and all that they traveled until they came to a place of harmony and then the other side of that is just that the harmony is with it and myself people can say whatever they want they can do whatever they want uh, I'm not trying to out litigate them. And so that's the forgiveness. That's the mercy that I'm, I'm not going there. Like someone says, someone said uh, something about two weeks ago that was clearly not true. And I, and I, and I, and my fingers went to the keyboard and I just shut the lid and, and I walked away and I felt so great. Because I wasn't going to argue. I mean, that was so cool because then it would have been back and forth. Who wants to do that? You know, I can hang out with you, Vamosara. I can hang out with Kevin. I love both your books, which are epic, by the way. Um, they will save the heart, mind, and soul. So thank you both for being such great predecessors of recovery for me. And uh, Richard, I really enjoyed meeting you, Jessica. And Holly, so this has been just a wonderful engagement. And Anissa, the, the technical support that I get to feel this kind of joy instead of trying to litigate with them cranky people. That you, you got to try and let them live every day. No fun. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So just in closing, I'm just going to give you one minute each. Thank you so much, everyone. I've heard um, just such a willingness and um, authenticity here. And we all know that uh, authenticity is required for recovery, right? And I think that I think that, yeah, waking up to the necessity to address these two things um, has been pivotal in my recovery because honestly, I've been speaking to a lot of people in recovery, BIPOC people, and I've said, you know, it feels like I'm counting days again. You know, I get all the things that um, I was suppressing before and to have these two forged um, has been just, you know, transcendent really, really life-changing, um, recovery-changing. So I hope that we can keep continuing. I think the next question and the question that I get a lot is like, how do we implement this? What do we do? Um, so these spaces are really important to discuss that and see, see what might be right for everyone. Um, so I hope to be part of those conversations going forward. And thank you so much for having me. Um, I feel unworthy, but I, I've gotten so much. Thank you so much. You are very worthy. Uh, Richard, yeah? Yeah, I, I can say some things too. So, uh, yeah, there were parts of me that were nervous to be on a panel and I feel like I survived and I'm happy about that. And, um, and uh, the last thing I'd like to say is, for me, it's all parallel. The way you relate to these parts of you inside translates into the way you're gonna relate to people who resemble those parts. So if you hate your inner racist, you're going to hate that external racist and you're going to polarize with him. If you can, what I call stay in self with an open heart and still stand up to that person, uh, that person's much more likely to look inside and actually listen to, listen to what you're saying. So you can not bypass your rage, but you can listen to your rage and you can speak from a, a different place for your age. And you can go to the, the ugly parts of you and learn that they're not what they seem, that they are parts that carry 
these burdens that they can unload and transform. And then they'll transform. Thank you. Kevin? Uh, well, thanks everybody. I just, I kind of feel like I fell in love with uh, a group of people today and I wish we could sort of hang out, you know, like sit, sit outside, have a cup of tea. And, um, yeah, I, I, like Richard, you know, as an old white man, I'm a, a little afraid, like, I don't know, should I be saying anything? And it's, right now I'm like, screw it, you know, I have to say what I can say. And, and I appreciate that Seho says there's an accident forgiveness policy. So if I, if I have an accident, then I can be forgiven and, and try to learn from that. Um, I'm, uh, you know, trying to get educated and that's, that's all, uh, all I can do. Um, I want to just for the white people out there, I want to recommend a course called White and Awakening. Uh, I was trying to find the link for it. They're doing it at Spirit Rock starting today, uh, but it's uh, two white uh, women who uh, have been offering that course and, and um, very powerful. Uh, so Vimla Sara, you're awesome. Thank you. Yeah, you definitely have intimidated me in the past and that was totally my shit. So uh, sorry that I've sworn like I knew I was holding back my swearing, but uh, I love you and uh, and this has been really great. I, I, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I'm told that this work is, uh, is difficult and that that I have to be willing to get uncomfortable. And this was difficult and I was uncomfortable and I, and I feel so happy right now <laughs> uh, because uh, the spiritual awakening is, it feels good uh, and, and it's never easy. So thanks. Thank you. Okay, Holly, are you with us? I'm here, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Okay, great. Um, I think first I just want to say, um, Fimos are, I just, I, I have so much love for you. And um, thank you for having me as part of this. And to all of you on this call, thank you um, for having this conversation. And, and including those of you that are just in, in the um, space of listening to us talk about this. Um, so it's just, it's an honor. And, privilege that I, I take tremendous, um, I have a tremendous amount of, um, uh, I, I, I hold this in a very, very, um, I don't have a word, so I'm just going to move on. Um, I think when I think about this in terms of a, a recovery space, I think if any, if any place should be having this conversation, if there's any, if there are any rooms, any community um that should be having this conversation about racism it is our community i just to me i think it is um bewildering how much resistance there is to having conversations about race within the recovery community and it is i do not see there is no true healing because I, the way that i conceptualize addiction is is really i think um as this like opposite, uh, like awareness is being its opposite. You go unconscious when you're in addiction and awareness is this antidote. And I think 
it's just surprising to me that we, and it's, I guess it's not surprising. It's just, I feel there's, there's such a tremendous possibility within this community to have these conversations because we understand forgiveness, compassion, self-compassion, um, because we understand healing and looking at our dark parts and all of these things that are, that are so consequential for freedom. And so I, I have great hope for this community to have these conversations and really do it. Um, it's an honor again to be part of this with all of you. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, say her. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> veneration and appreciation to my mother who gave birth to me. <clears throat> veneration and respect for the womb, which is the Dharma gate from which we all have emerged into this place and this world. Vimala Sara, I appreciate you, Huari Sala, and so many ancestors who have welcomed me into the community of uh, Blackness and BIPOC. Uh, I've spent many years in Japanese monasteries, and so to emerge, it can be startling for me to how to harmonize well um, among our people, I have to admit. So I am humbled at all times. I appreciate Summer Taylor and all the white allies that in this latest movement have laid down their white lives for black lives and have made the ultimate sacrifice for all beings, not just for blacks, but so that white people can go free from this sick oppression of body, speech, and mind. Thank you living white allies who have, especially the millennials who have been in sustained resistance all across, not just the United States of America, but this globe. However innumerable all beings are, we vow to the best of our ability to care for them all. However inexhaustible our delusions are, we vow to release them all through our practice to the best of our ability. However immeasurable the teachings of grace are, we vow to the best of our ability to learn them and master them all. And however endless the Buddhist way is, loving, kind, clear, seamless presence, we vow and we promise to the best of our ability, not perfectly, to follow it. Thank you. Thank you. So, thank you. Thank you for that blessing, Seho. I, I just want to say all of you, firstly, for trusting in me to, to have this, this conversation, because it's very new. I want to call out Dr. Nzinga A. Harrison, who um, coined this term, uh, racism as an addiction. So it's very new to be beginning to, well, I'm sure it, out there in the world, people have been thinking about it, but to be talking about racism through this lens is very new. So I just really want to say thank you to all of you. And also with me coining that expression of the codependency of racism. But I want to leave people with a reflection because if we really do think about 
racism as an addiction and the codependency of racism. I want you to, um, well, firstly, I want to say that uh, if we have an addiction, then what's that addiction? You know, so if we have an addiction to food, we're going to have food. And if we have an addiction to sex, we're going to have the sex or whatever. What's the substance? What's the substance if we are um, have this addiction of racism? What's the substance of codependency of racism? Take a look at your cell phone and look at look at the race of people who you've called the last five to ten people who you've called in your phone what race are these people who who do you engage with daily moment to moment look at your world and see who your world is and who you who you engage with and that will tell you something about the addiction of racism and and also for ourselves you know as as black indigenous people of color because on our phone it could be the majority of white people and that might tell us a bit about our codependency to racism so i just leave you with that reflection and uh thank you so much over and out okay hi i'm bimla sara President of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run nonprofit which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the Academy free resources on our website and all our podcasts are free. We also organize a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners and our interviewees in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude for your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace. Mm -hmm.